You're listening to Global Conversations. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Global Conversations podcast. My name is Kai, and it's an absolute pleasure to be a host again. Today, I'll be having a very personal, timely, and necessary conversation about understanding and tackling anti-Asian racism in North America with Monk School's very esteemed faculty member, Professor Joseph Wong. Professor Wong is the University of Toronto's Vice President International. He is also the Ross and Ralph Hulbert Professor of Innovation at the Monk School and Professor of Political Science at UFT. He was the Director of the Asian Institute at the Monk School from 2005 to 2014 and is the founder of the REACH Alliance at the UFT. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can follow us on Twitter at G underscore conversations and on Instagram at monk, M-U-N-K-G-C. You can also check out our website at www.monkgc.com where you can find loads of great content created by students at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Without further ado, let's get started. Professor Wong, thank you very much for being a guest today. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm excited about this conversation. Absolutely. Let's dive right into it, if you don't mind. Following the murder of six Asian women in Atlanta on March 16th of last month, you wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail calling out anti-Asian racism, which I absolutely loved. I found it deeply relatable and thought-provoking. In particular, you claim that microaggressions are racist, period. For listeners who haven't read your piece yet, how would you define microaggressions and why do they matter? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I want to, you know, it's interesting how you said it was really relatable to you. Um, And I think that one of the things that I found in terms of the reception or how people have responded and reacted to that op-ed is that, you know, for many people, it is totally relatable. And I've heard from many um, Chinese Canadians, Asian Canadians, other people of color, visible minorities who've reached out and said, like, you, you put into words how I have felt uh, with respect to microaggressions, uh, but have never either had the courage to speak out on or never really had the words to articulate how it is that I feel and how it is that you know, as a person of color, you receive these things. So you find it relatable. I find it relatable. Other visible minorities find it relatable, especially Chinese North Americans or, uh, and Chinese folks. Absolutely. But there are many people who do not find it relatable, who find it completely unrelatable. And I think that's actually the core problem. That's the distinction, right? Absolutely. Microaggressions are a kind of interaction you experience and you know, if you are a person of color or a Chinese Canadian such as myself, you know, you feel the microaggression. You you interpret a question like, where are you from? Or why do you speak English so well? Or, you know, um, do your parents own the Chinese restaurant? The person saying that may not feel or may not even intend to be aggressive or intend to be racist, but you on the receiving end feel that sort of microaggression. But if you are not part of a minority culture or if you're not a visible minority, 
you would not experience that. And so there are several reasons. One, because they happen on a person-to-person level, right? So it's at the micro level, at the individual level. It's an interaction that occurs at a, at a micro level. But they're also, I think, called microaggressions because they are, each one on its own may seem pretty insignificant, right? Yes. We think of this interaction, that's just simply not true. So as I wrote that piece, you know, I thought to myself, you know, I recounted all these instances where I experienced these microaggressive utterances. And again, each one on its own is not, in, is not terribly significant, but the accumulation of them are. And the, I think the fact that I remember every single one of them suggests that, you know, that they aren't completely dismissible, that they did have an impact on, uh, on who I am and, and, and how I think about these sorts of things. And so microaggressions are these everyday, you know, routinized comments, interactions, um, like I've suggested things like, you know, you speak English really well for someone who's Chinese and so forth, right? Thank you very much for sharing this, Professor. Speaking of microaggressions, the one that I keep getting still to this day, perhaps a little less than before, but I'm pretty tall. I'm 6'3". And for some people who meet me for the first time, they come to me and they tell me, hey, Sky, you're pretty tall for an Asian. When I was younger, <laughs> when I was younger, I remember this very specific event when I was walking around the neighborhood with my friend and a parent made that remark to me. And at that time, very naively, I almost took it as a compliment. But to my friend, he knew that this was deeply insulting. So he told me, Sky, this is not okay, and you have to do something about this. You should definitely think about it. That being said, when you're 13, 14, you're not really conscious of those realities. And I certainly wasn't aware or I wasn't ready to have this conversation. And fast forward to today, 10 years later, I'm convinced that through the conversation that we're having, through education and through mutual understanding, more and more people are going to understand the different facets and subtleties of racism in our society. You know, I think also, I think if we were to be totally honest, we've all made microaggressive comments or what we would call microaggressive comments. We've all said things that maybe uh, that are insensitive and um, we've all uttered things that play on stereotypes and so forth, if we were to be honest. And I think actually it's important that as a society, all of us should be honest about that because what that then means is, is that by recognizing that we are saying, okay, I need others to help educate me in terms of what is offensive to them and what is problematic. All right. And so when friends of mine who are, you know, Italian friends of mine say like, you know, that kind of bothers me when you say that it's like, okay, I get it. Right. We can have a conversation about it in terms of why does it bother you? How does it make you feel? Or I would just simply say, you know what? If that makes you feel uncomfortable, I've learned something, right? I think that that's one of the really important things about microaggressive behavior is that oftentimes it's not intended to be hurtful. It's just naivety. It's just not having the ability to be in someone else's shoes, you know, to feel what they feel uh, at that instance. But if we are a caring society, yeah. and if we have this other learning capacity, 
then we should be open when someone says, hey, look, you know what, that just that just doesn't fly or that just doesn't feel right or, you know, that bothers me or, you know, why would you say something like that? Precisely. And for you to then say, you know what, that's cool. I, I apologize and I'm taking that out of my, you know, of my, my lexicon. I'm taking that out of my vocabulary or I'm taking that out of my, you know, cultural tropes and so forth. Professor, I'd like to ask you a follow-up question on your op-ed. There's a part that really touched me when you mentioned that your parents, who have been living in Canada for 50-plus years, are increasingly afraid of going outside. And even worse, I quote you, What saddens me the most is that my parents' belief in Canadian multiculturalism has been shaken. The country they love is not the place they once thought. What is the place they once thought, and how has it changed? That's a great question. And it really, it saddens me too. I contemplated whether I wanted to write that statement or not, because, you know, my parents are extremely happy. They're extremely grateful uh, for being in Canada. They've chosen to make their lives here. Um, and so, you know, I really thought hard about whether I wanted to make that statement because I know it to be true. But I also, you know, I didn't want it, I didn't want it to, I contemplated whether I wanted it to be in print, something that my parents would read and something that, you know, that maybe put into words, something that they don't want to think about or that maybe they just feel badly about. But I think it's true. Like we have more conversations with my parents, my sister and I and our families and my parents' grandkids, you know, and so forth, have more conversations about racism than I can ever recall. And, you know, it's, it's sad that it has to occur, you know, almost like a half century later after they've lived here for so long for them now to start contemplating and recognizing these instances and in acts of racism and not necessarily to them personally, but around them. And I think it's terribly tragic I don't necessarily think it's an indictment on Canada uh, or, you know, their particular neighborhood. I think it's a reminder that we could be doing better. Uh, and I think it's a, you know, it's a, it's a wake up call. It's a reminder that, you know, that there are still warts out there that we need to take care of. But again, you know, just speaking about my parents' experience, it's really interesting. Like there was a line in the op-ed in which, uh, my, I, I recount how my parents are, you know, they're not sure if they should wear a mask when they go outside for walks. And, you know, a lot of people comment to me and they say, well, what's the confusion, right? I mean, why, why would they, you know, it's, it's what public health guidelines are recommending that we do. Yep. And I know exactly why my parents are anxious about that, because you're visibly Chinese and you're wearing a mask, you know. And you, you're playing into some narratives out there that the Chinese are to blame or that the Chinese are the ones who brought this virus to Canada or to North America. Exactly. And so, you know, the reason why they're anxious about wearing a mask is not for public health reasons. It's for just drawing more attention to themselves. Others have pointed out, too. It's like, you know, when my parents go for a walk and people like visibly like veer six, you know, veer away from them and so forth. And people have said like, well, you know, that's what we all do right now. That's what public health is telling us. Absolutely. But from my parents' perspective, 
think about they're walking, you know, along the sidewalk and people look at them, maybe even glare at them, maybe even not glare at them, but all you can see are their eyes. And so that's what you think, but it makes them feel like they're not part of the community anymore. And so again, you know, it's not other people's fault. It's not, you know, it is, it is, you know, there's not, uh, they should be, they should be wearing a mask. You should be, you know, you should be trying to veer away from each other on the sidewalk and so forth, but it doesn't take away from the fact that my parents feel uncomfortable. I spoke at a, at an event recently and I recounted, you know, one of my favorite movies, um, which is Harold and Kumar go to white castle. And, you know, it's, it's an Asian stoner film. So it's, you know, it's hilarious, right? But to the point, it's actually a very subversive film, right? Because it's turning the model minority myth on its head in a way. And you have these two otherwise really upstanding model minority Asians who are also stoners, right? Yeah. And there was this one scene in the movie. Have you seen the movie? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> Oh, you should definitely see the movie. There's this one scene where, anyway, there's a bunch of like, you know, hooligan white guys and they're, you know, they're kind of scary looking and they're in this gas station and Harold, who's the Korean American, right? um, Looks in the gas station and his buddy Kumar says, you know, well, why don't we just go in? And Harold looks in and he says, no, it's okay. I'm going to, that's all right. And, you know, it's one of those scenes where if you're not, if you're not Asian or I don't know, but I mean, for me, it was like, that totally spoke to me. I was like, how many times in my life have I looked in a sports bar and I just see, you know, just, I don't see anybody who looks like me in that sports bar and I just walk out of there. Or how many times have I, you know, got into a place where I'm clearly, you know, like a small town or something like that. Again, you know, the folks, you know, they may be totally cool. In fact, they 99% chance they probably are totally cool. You know, I just get a little anxious and I'm not entirely comfortable. And I was born here, right? I mean, you know, I grew up here and for me to still feel that. So that scene in that movie, I don't know, unless you are a person of color or a visible minority, I don't know if that scene would resonate with you quite like it did with me. Now I talked to my, you know, my son, who's, who's, uh, you know, part Chinese Canadian. And I said, like, what'd you think of that? And he said, oh yeah, I totally, totally got it. Right. And he was born here. He was, you know, raised here and so on. So it's the sense of like, it's not overt. It's not, you know, violent in the physical sense. It's just the sense of being uncomfortable. And that's what my parents are sadly increasingly feeling. Professor Wong, thank you very much for sharing this. I'm sure that this is going to resonate deeply with many, many of our listeners. Prof Wong, I'm not going to be asking you too many personal questions, I promise. But for the next one, I did some research and I saw that you were born here and you've lived in Toronto, Montreal, Wisconsin, and even Seoul in Korea. I watched one of your interviews about your time in Seoul where you mentioned that you have been looked down upon there since you're not Korean, but Chinese. So my question really to you is, has the racism that you've experienced in Korea been similar to that that you've experienced elsewhere? And have you been racially discriminated against 
in every single city that you've lived in? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I was I was actually born in Montreal, but raised here in uh, uh, outside of Toronto in Brampton. Um, but you're right, I've lived, uh, you know, then I went to university in Montreal, went to graduate school in the US, lived in Boston for a while as well when I was finishing grad school. And of course, have lived overseas where, where when I was doing my field research. You know, I mean, it depends on what you mean, right? And this is, again, one of the reasons why I wanted to be very clear in the op-ed to say that microaggressions are, are a form of racism. Yes. Because I would say that I have experienced a lot of microaggressions. Mm -hmm. um, I have not been the victim of physical violence. You know, I've been, like, at hockey games in Boston where people have said stupid things to me, you know, or... Uh, wherever. I mean, that, that happens and I, I can recount them. Uh, but, you know, in, this, in a way I, I dismiss them as well. So I've not been the victim of, you know, of the real physical violence that we have seen in other parts uh, of the world. And, and, and tragically, so many people have had to experience. Um, but I would say that, yeah, I, I think that I've experienced microaggressive and microaggressions that are again at their core a form of racism and i've experienced that everywhere now that being said like you know if you're a white guy and you're in china yeah uh you're probably experiencing a lot of racism too and, and sadly and tragically i know many of my friends who are black uh who have spent time in east asia feel extraordinary racism towards them sometimes quite overt so I, I think that if you would ask that question to anybody who has spent any time in any society in which they are not part of the dominant group, if they have felt prejudice or discrimination or uncomfortableness around them, I think that they would all admit to it, which is sad. Professor, in your opinion, what explains racism? What causes it? And why has it existed for as long as we can remember? I have no, I mean, you, you know, there's, there are historians, there are sociologists, there are social psychologists who are experts, um, who are experts on this. Um, I couldn't offer any kind of expert analysis or um, thinking on that. I mean, I, I, I will say again, in the area of microaggressions, yeah. I think we see the proliferation of that or the routinization of that because they are on their own relatively insignificant or it feels relatively insignificant it's the accumulative effect of them that we then you know see the kinds of cleavages and we see the discrimination and we see the the lines being drawn um, throughout society and i i mean i suspect that those kind of microaggressive behaviors or utterances are so widespread and have proliferated so much precisely because they are routinized. You know, they're part of these stereotypes, these tropes that's in our literature, it's in our social media, it's in the movies that we watch, right? I mean, they're so routinized and so part of the mainstream that they can very stealthily and very surreptitiously reinforce a lot of these racist ideas and tropes. Um, and it's not until we start calling out each one and we start educating each other about them until we do that. I don't really see that form of racism ending anytime soon. And, you know, and I think it's the ease with which we do it uh, that is the real cause of it. And again, I think, look, to all the listeners out there, if you're to be really honest with yourself, 
you too have made these microaggressive comments. Um, it's whether you have then sought out to be educated or to ask why and to change your behavior, uh, you know, it's only then when you do that, then that I think that you are actually contributing to a real kind of anti-racist movement. I fully agree with you, Professor Wong. We've all made insensitive comments in a way or another, and it's about learning from them and refrain from repeating them that only then we can do more good than harm in tackling racism of any sort, really. Professor Wong, I'd like to provide you with an anecdote of a very good friend of mine who really went through a shocking racist event many years ago. He was in grade 9, and while his teacher left the classroom for a few seconds, he started talking. The teacher next door thought that he was so loud that he entered the classroom, walked towards my friend, and told him, Vancouver 1907, and left. Wow. Yeah. Wow. As a result of this, my friend took action against the teacher in vain. Recently, more than 10 years after this shocking event, we had a conversation about tackling anti-Asian racism, and my friend didn't seem as optimistic, and it almost seemed as if he lost faith in our educational system to combating racism. In your view, how is it even possible that such instances still persist in our educational institutions? And what's your take on that? Well, I'm really sorry that your friend had to go through that experience. And, you know, now that you say it, um, you know, I've had similar experiences throughout my life as well. You know, as I say, whether it's someone making a racial slur at a hockey game or, you know, or something on the street or, you know, even a teacher. And it's, it's I think it's, it's particularly shameful because this teacher is supposed to be someone who frankly should know better and be as someone who is role model and should be uh, facilitating productive discussion and productive conversations as opposed to making these kinds of statements. I mean, you know, look, there are going to be people, individuals like that all, all over the place and, and one is going to confront them. And again, depending on the context, right? I mean, if you're a woman, you no doubt experience this all the time, overtly and sometimes uh, less overtly. If you're black, if you're Muslim, if you're Chinese, if you're Korean, if you're Asian, if you're South Asian, Indian, Pakistan, doesn't matter, you're going to experience this. My reaction has tended to be to not lose faith in the broad social fabric of society. Yes. And I usually um, dismiss those individuals uh, as, well, I mean, as idiots, but um, in a way in which I actually, I feel sorry for them. You know, I don't know how else, maybe that's a defensive mechanism on my part is to feel pity. Uh, but, you know, I, I would tell your friend that those are singular individuals yes. and hopefully those are singular um, incidences in their life. Uh, they are not to be dismissed, but I think it's well within your friend's right to um, also take pity on this, you know, ignorant, um, hateful person and what a miserable life they must lead. Professor, I'm not sure if you still follow any media from Quebec, but two weeks ago, a renowned Vietnamese-born author, Kim Thuy, said in an interview with La Presse that in her 40 years in Quebec, she's never felt any sort of racism in the province. Or even worse, 
She claims that this may be due to her unwillingness to even acknowledge that racism exists. I found those comments very out of place, very hard to believe, and most importantly though, I thought that those comments were a barrier to the conversation that we're trying to have. Do you believe so? And do you think that this is a way of downgrading the seriousness of the situation and the conversation? I think the effect of this, it would be to downgrade the seriousness uh, of the conversation. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's what her intention is. I mean, it, you know, it could very well just be, and I, a lot of folks may not want to call this out for fear uh, of retribution, may not want to draw attention to things uh, for fear of retribution as well. And so in that regard, you know, I think the effect of of that kind of denial, if, if in fact that's the case, I mean, maybe, I mean, it's an empirical question whether she's experienced anything or not, but yeah. I think that the, 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 the net effect of that would be to, to downgrade the, the importance uh, of this conversation. That being said, it's not easy calling these things out either. And I was surprised by how many people have written to me, as I said at the very start, you know, not just you know, not just recounting or thanking me for articulating what they have felt, but for articulating what they dared not say or that they didn't have the courage to say. And I think that's, you know, that's too bad that, the, that, that we live in a society in which you need to muster up that much courage to call out a wrong and to call out something for what it is. But, you know, I mean, you know, I'm a senior leader at a university, I'm a well-established professor and so forth. Maybe I have a little bit more courage, I don't know. But I did think about it. I did think about whether I wanted to write this because I knew that it would put me out there yep. and it would put a target on my back and people would say nasty things. And you know, if you read the comment section of that Global Mail op-ed, a lot of not nice things were said about me. So yeah, I guess it takes some courage to call it out. And we truly thank you for this. And on the brighter side, that courage led us to have this conversation today. Moving forward, what solutions do you foresee to tackling racism? Conversation. You know, a friend of mine once wrote this book on racism during World War II, and he made the distinction between overt racism and polite racism. And the upshot of it is that overt racism actually is a lot easier to deal with because in the sense that an overt racist does an overtly racist act, you know, beats up a black man, kills a black man, kills six Asian women, kills an indigenous woman, beats up, you know, a South Asian man or child or whatever. In a sense, that's easier to call out because that's just so egregious, that's so impolite, that's so overt. And it so contravenes not only the law, but whatever norm of decency we might have. In a sense, ferreting that out and combating that, it's not easier, but it's a little clearer. The harder part is addressing polite racism, which actually is a way of saying microaggression, right? I mean, yes. you can have polite yes. conversation, but through the course of that polite conversation, you know, you could have like a barrage of stereotypical com or comments rooted in stereotypes or ignorant comments or comments that are insensitive or comments that uh, to the listener may find it or the, on the receiving end may find that offensive. 
uh, but it's all within polite conversation. It's all within, you know, within the, the non-overt kind of racism. That's the much harder racism to address, I think. And that's why, again, the headline of that op-ed is that microaggressions are a form of racism. Like, let's not try to downgrade that, right? And let's, and let's not try to make that diminutive uh, in any way, because if we do, we're just ignoring and we're not going to address something that is so widespread. So how do you deal with that? I think it's really just about conversation. It's about, it's about folks who are on the receiving end of these microaggressive behaviors to call it out. And it's also those who are making the microaggressive statements to be willing to listen, right? And to sure. not be offended, to not be defensive, to not, heaven forbid, to, to react with violence. It's to yes. simply to be open-minded and say, okay, I get it, or I want to learn. Um, so it's going to take both sides. It's going to take people to call it out, but it's also those who are being called out to be receptive. I mean, look, as I said, I've made microaggressive comments. Anybody out there who says they haven't would be lying. And I remember one time I made a comment and someone said to me, that's a microaggression. I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, and here's why. And I remember being kind of like a little taken aback. Uh, my instinct was to be maybe a little on the defensive, but I didn't say anything. And I thought about it for a long time. And I thought, Yep, that's a stupid thing to say, and I'll never say it again. And, you know, I might say it again just by accident because it's so part of our vernacular, it's so part of our tropes and so on, but I'm going to make every effort to catch myself. Now, I'm not a serial microaggressive. There are times where you, you just don't want to believe that about yourself. Like, I can't believe I just said that, and someone called me out for that, and you want to be defensive. But no, the best thing to do is to not be defensive, is to listen and to listen authentically uh, and for the person that you're interacting with to share with authenticity. Until we do that, we're never gonna get, we're, we're never going to eliminate microaggressive behaviors. So that's the hard part, but that's also, you know, if we could all just be willing to be educated, to have the courage to speak up, you know, that's not that hard either, right? So it's a mix of like, you know, it's a simple solution, but hard to implement. That's a very nice way to put it. So it seems like you're very optimistic and that one day, one day, and maybe one century or perhaps even more, if people are willing to have this conversation, to engage in the conversation, maybe one day racism will decline drastically. I hope so. I mean, look, and I think this is a great way to end this conversation. I'm, I'm a professor. So, you know, my the people that I interact with all the time are students or young people, right? I mean, one of the nice things about being a professor is that your main um, interlocutor always stays 20 years old, right? Uh, 20 years ago, I was 20 year olds. 20 years later, I'm still teaching 20 year olds. And what's really great is, is that I think that your generation owns a completely different set of norms. If you think about climate change, if you think about social justice, if you think about addressing inequality, I mean, there is a kind of generational ownership that we see among uh, young people today and those values are deeply baked. They're deeply ingrained. They're not reactionary. Uh, they're part of your DNA. And you know, you're going to be in positions of impact and leadership. You're going to be 
shaping the conversation. You're going to be the thought leaders. You're going to be parents, uncles and aunts and so forth. So I'm quite optimistic uh, about the future. Um, and because we're having conversations with people like yourself that I never had 25, 30 years ago. I appreciate that. Professor, we have a question from one of my closest friends who's currently a law student at McGill. He is wondering if you could please comment on the impact of affirmative action in Canada for Asian communities. And more precisely, has it been working? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, one of the things that, you know, as I've often reminded my own students in my courses, affirmative action, as it was conceived of 50, 60 years ago, was that hiring managers would take affirmative action to uh, not discriminate based on race, color, creed, gender, and so forth, right? So in other words, the original intention of affirmative action was not quotas. Uh, the original intention for, for affirmative action was to enact affirming action, affirmative action to not be racist, to not be discriminatory, and so forth. And so I'm a firm believer in that ethos. I'm a firm believer in that affirming and affirmative action. I think the question that your colleague is asking you is, you know, or that, you're, that your colleague is asking is around what are the tools to ensure uh, that affirming action. And, you know, this is, this is a much, much trickier question, right, in terms of quotas uh, and, and so forth. Um, so, you know, I mean, that, that I think it really depends on specific context and so forth. I mean, one of the things that uh, we have become very much accustomed to when we are hiring or when we're looking at candidates is that you know, is, is all things being equal, um, that we want to be sure that our hiring practices reflect the diversity that is the reality of our society. And I think that's critical. And the second is, again, in terms of affirmative action, recognizing that people will have different lived experiences, that you cannot compare CVs as, are, as though they are apples to apples. And this apple happens to be this much bigger and this much juicier and this much, you know, whatever. But to recognize the individual life journeys that students bring and empowering young people, applicants, students, whatever it might be, or anybody, empowering them to articulate a story. Because I think the worst thing to do then is also to impart or impose meaning on someone's life experience or to infer one's life experience based on the color of their skin or the color of their hair or the religion that they follow or their gender. So it's to empower people to articulate the story and then to assess their life journey in a way that recognizes that you're not always comparing apples to apples. That's how I would answer that question. That's how I live my life. Professor Wong, those were all the questions that I had for you. On behalf of all my colleagues who read your piece and told me to ask you questions, thank you enormously for your insight on such a timely topic. Do you have any concluding remarks? You know, very grateful for you, Sky, taking on this really difficult topic. And I, I know for you, a very personal one as well, or I've gotten a sense from you, a very personal one as well. And, thank you, very much. you know, as I said, it's, it's easy to be courageous to put yourself out there when you're a tenured professor and you have nothing to lose. It's very different when, when you're starting out 
when you're finding your own professional feet. And I applaud you for drawing a line in the sand that you have said, I will not cross and I will not let others cross. And I think that's really, that's really great. It's really important and it's really courageous. So good on you and good on your colleagues too. Thank you very much for your kind words and for your time today, Professor Wong. I'll definitely keep you posted and I look forward to following up with you. Okay, cool. Great. Just chatting. Bye for now.